Welcome to Every Mother's Son's second installment of Will's World, where our team will be bringing you monthly breakdowns on some of the most significant connections to William Shakespeare and his texts. You can expect to hear us share about how the world influenced his writings, or about his writings influenced the world, or maybe both. We'll be continuing this series with this episode coming to you shortly after what is our Independence Day here in the U.S., a day meant to celebrate British colonists breaking away from the English Empire to establish the United States of America. Some of Shakespeare's plays make reference to the early days of the European colonization of the Americas. However, we plan to focus less on these instances and instead on how Shakespeare's works found their way across the Atlantic and into a new world despite a whole host of obstructions. Please join us for a discussion on how this moment of change in history intersects with Shakespeare's work during and after his life. Hello, my name is Connor Finnegan. And I'm Amanda Houchins. And we are here for another episode of Will's World. We're kind of looking at talking about this because uh, Amanda and I were talking uh, during the summer months and thinking, okay, well, our first episode is on the Wars of the Roses. So what other timely things, you know, that being uh, centered around Memorial Day, what other timely things in the summertime uh, are there to talk about? Well, there is the 4th of July in the U.S., the Independence Day. As both of us live here in the yes. U.S., it seemed uh, appropriate to talk about Shakespeare and how he would affect colonization in what would become the United States eventually. Right. And so, you know, how did his text literally get over here? And, and how did his messages and his themes uh, make their appearances here? You know, did it come through more as, as reading or as performance? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as literature performance, I should, I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, how did that all happen? And, and you know, because surely we have to imagine that uh, you know, despite efforts of different churches and governments in, in England, that one of the greatest writers of all time had to have made it over to what was being referred to as the new world right Mm -hmm. and i think um it's really interesting and we'll talk more about this as we like get into the history but how shakespeare was looked at as poetry by a lot of early settlers and a lot of people are introduced to shakespeare as poetry in their english like their ninth grade english class they read romeo and juliet and look at it as poetry not theater so that i while we were doing all this research was really interesting to me just his early days in the americas i didn't even think about that because i don't know if you're saying if that's how kids were getting introduced to it then or now it is now how we get introduced to it but it was the the only acceptable way for puritans to look at shakespeare was as uh as literature and not as um theater so it's just kind of interesting how we never truly change (laughs) no i mean so if that's the american tradition is to primarily treat it as literature it's stuck around right Mm -hmm. um and so you know obviously neither amanda nor i went through an english or, or any uh, international education system and so i i guess i i don't have the research to say whether or not but yeah i wonder in england when they when they're approaching intermediate school and and getting into middle school or high school whatever whatever uh names they have for those there are they seeing it as performance right away and now this is an american sentiment to view it versus literature mm-hmm. i don't know yeah maybe we'll maybe if there's a listener out there who has any idea you should let us know mm. so that we can be more educated on that topic i suppose um but why don't we jump right into some of the early history of what they would refer to as the new world and where our European colonizers began. Right. You know, there's two timelines that I think we really want to look at here. One is the timeline of the American colonization and how uh, different entities in Europe uh, made their way here and started colonizing, settling different areas in the U.S. Uh, and then the other timeline is Shakespeare and his life and his death and his legacy. 
right? So uh, Leif Erikson was a, a Norse explorer. Seems as though he's kind of one of the the first um, leaders to take a crew of, of people that, barring people, barring people who were already here for thousands and thousands of years, mm-hmm. you know, some of the first people to, to land on shore. Like a first of the European settlers, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, and largely in the Canadian areas, uh, so, you know, a little bit further north than what we're talking about. Uh, but, you know, possibly in the northeast, you know, there's some some evidence that would support those kinds of things as well and and so we're we're talking about uh, that being upwards or nearly a thousand years ago and then there's this kind of big gap where uh, there's not a lot of recorded activity uh, until the spanish you know we always hear about or at least another thing from our American <laughs> education system was, oh, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1492. Um, and now we know that the, the American education system failed to tell us some of the other parts of that. Yeah, like there are way other, uh, way more people were already like trying to get over here and stuff. It's just funny how the world yes. works that way. Um, but yeah, I always wondered like, there is this large gap where you just don't have anybody doing any kind of exploring. And I know we're kind of like Mm -hmm. in the middle ages at that point. And maybe there is some like plague activity and all this kind of stuff that maybe it's just preventing people from having the time or the resources to, to do a lot of sailing. You've got the crusades and stuff. I feel like Europe was really busy for like a thousand years <laughs> and that's that's something that will you're totally right amanda and that's something we're going to probably visit again is just the idea of uh countries entities groups armies being really busy and not having time for time and resources mm-hmm. for the the kinds of things that we're talking about here uh being exploration like this and and really our core of what we are going to talk about is theater, hopefully. And that becomes, you know, those two things, amongst other things, they kind of go to the wayside, mm-hmm. as we'll find in wartime and times of conflict and things like that. Yes. So the Spanish are coming here, like we're saying, you know, almost half a, almost half a millennia after mm-hmm. uh, these, these Norse ex- explorations. And then, and then people start trickling in. So that you know that happens in the southeast part of the United States, in the southwestern part of the United States, and you can there's some nice maps you could find on the internet of where uh, different ships were were landing and and how they uh, worked inward. I mean, the the evidence is there in different names of towns and whatnot mm-hmm. all along uh, the west coast, like all the way up from San Francisco to San Diego and which you know, California takes up most of the West Coast. And then in the Southeast, all the uh, Spanish names that made their way in, into Florida and, and that area, mm-hmm. and even the Caribbean areas there. Um, and then eventually we start to see the Dutch. And so they find themselves in the Northeast. And it, it's probably uh, the first time that Native Americans are, are seeing uh, Europeans in the Northeast, and I know there's some uh, different records of the of different groups meeting there, and which led to New Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and so that's what we know now as New York, and so I think I read something about how the Dutch bought Manhattan Island which is now the home of American theater mm-hmm. for like $25, something like that. And so it, it's, I don't know too much about that whole transaction, but uh, there was not a lot of a time wasted. As soon as the Spanish and the Dutch started coming in, it, the settlements started coming up quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that quickly led to the English. So... Uh, those of us who are listening from the U.S. may remember in uh, middle school and, and, and even high school English, English classes hearing about uh, Roanoke. So that is this failed settlement 
uh, one of the first, I think the first that the they did it English twice, didn't they? There were two Roanokes, one where the settlers died out, and that was proven, and then they mm. sent another ship to Roanoke, and that's where you have uh, the disappearance. But I think I just saw an article where they fi- they figured out what happened to the people oh. at the Roanoke. So it's supposed to be this like big mystery, but I think a couple years ago they discovered that they just... Um, combined with a group of indigenous peoples from the area which i think is kind of interesting like why did it take so long to prove that but well yeah i mean you could you could probably speculate that there was conflict between native people and the first uh group that came to roanoke um and so they didn't know what they were doing they just came here yeah i mean they meaning british Mm -hmm. folks um, and, and they probably failed miserably because they were in a place they weren't supposed to be and they didn't know how to live in. Mm-hmm. It, it may be that simple. I really don't know. And um, I want to try and find that article because I like, I, like I like that part of history as well. It's interesting how they just kept failing and then just kept sending more and more people over. But it was like a lot of privately funded groups that were coming over, right, to hunt and gather mm-hmm. furs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and like sugar in the Caribbean too, right? Wasn't cane sugar like a big reason that everyone was trying to get over here initially? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, sugar for tea, sugar for for rum, mm-hmm. for booze. That's how rum is made. Yeah, that's a, it's definitely a commodity, just like, you know, I, as, we, as we'll see later on in history, the, the other big commodities like tobacco in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Money makes the world go round. It's true. Um, Capitalism and, and is the entire reason that we live in this country today. I truly feel that way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, the English didn't send over uh, like a royal... A royal crew, mm-hmm. um, you know, on His Majesty to, to settle Jamestown. That's that's the Virginia Company. That's them. That's the the private wealthy group saying, "Hey, there's an opportunity to make money here. Let's go seize it." Mm-hmm. So and they that totally makes sense. Sure did. Why don't you tell me a little bit uh-huh. about Jamestown? Sure. So Jamestown, you know, while Roanoke kind of was happening between the Spanish settling and the Dutch settling, you know, the, the first kind of settlements that really worked, uh, like like Jamestown, um, didn't happen until even after the Dutch were here and after New Amsterdam, uh, New Amsterdam was established. And so that's 1607. Uh, and, you know, as we'll kind of gather the Shakespeare timeline soon as well, you can start to think in your mind like okay shakespeare only has a few years in his in his life left at this point mm-hmm. and so we're we're getting to the point where i don't as, as far as i could tell and, and probably you either i don't think any shakespeare made it over uh on on ships to jamestown i don't think as far as there's like evidence of it being here, I don't mm-hmm. think I saw anything until the 1700s. That's like the first folio that I saw that someone had in their library. Whether or not it was saw, here prior some... to that, but yeah, I, I I think I saw some a little bit earlier mm-hmm. than that. But you know, the the different quartos and octavos that were being printed they were available at this time and so it, it is a little hard to determine why they didn't make it over to jamestown you know mm-hmm. it, it could be argued that it was as simply as uh or as simple as hey we only have so much room on the ship and and we need to send as many men women children food supplies etc mm-hmm. and and a, and a book <laughs> does not make the cut um, poetry so I, why I'm, would you even think about doing that that's ridiculous yeah why i mean why why would you want life to be worth living you also have to wonder You're like to make money. how expensive were they uh the re- 
resources yes. for paper. Do you know what I was thinking to myself earlier today? Um, mm. This is something else we would need our time machine to know. So let's keep working on that. But I was wondering, do you think that these settlers came here and maybe they did have more possessions? Like maybe they had quartos that they had to use for another purpose, at some, like for a survival mm. purpose. And so maybe they were here, but there's just no physical evidence of it because it was repurposed in some way. That and, and the and the other thing now that you say that is even if they didn't need it for survival purposes, I think we're also kind of setting up a, a weird expectation that, oh, because it happened hundreds of years ago and, and we learned so much about history that, you know, they must have taken an inventory on everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did they did they really take an inventory on everything? Is it possible that there were multiple, multiple cordos on that book, but nobody thought to write down, I brought my copy of Titus Andronicus with me. Right, exactly. It, maybe it's not even likely. Maybe uh, maybe we're fools for thinking that we're going to find information about that. I mean, just can't. If they can't no. find them here, then there's no reason to believe that they were. Right. So it's just interesting I still, someday if someone builds a time machine, we are going to be the first ones in it. And we're going to go back to solve mm-hmm. all the questions that we've raised for ourselves. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really leaning on that at that point, yeah. at this point <laughs> in my life. Because I, if I don't get the answers, I will. Maybe go crazy. I will lose it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Jamestown was our first successful settlement, right? So people were like mm-hmm. here, they were thriving ish as thriving as you can be in the wilderness um yes and then the english just kept coming yeah they just decided oh yes so much money we're we're the first ones really to survive in this area let's do it let's take over yep and then and then the next big one that everybody knows about or at least everybody who went through the american education system knows about is the mayflower Mm -hmm. right and, and the pilgrims and, and all that jazz that we that we talked about and and Thanksgiving, which were that could be a, a whole different episode. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know that 1620 is when they arrive in Plymouth, and so we're talking about a gap of 13 years in which a lot happened in England. Uh, you know, Shakespeare's gone now. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare passed away, uh, I believe, in 1616. So mm-hmm. he's a few years gone. And and the people that are coming on this ship are seemingly or stereotypically kind of anti-Shakespeare. They're Puritans. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I know the, the exact beliefs of of the of a of a puritan in 17th century england but they didn't like theater Mm -hmm. i can tell you that much and and so you know while this while we're making a transition of shakespeare going from uh, performance to literature with the printing of these corridors and octavos and folios you know i i think that puritans still think of it as performance and theater and so they're not ready to to adapt it fully and go like, oh yeah, this is literature that I can appreciate. No, I don't think so. I don't you know none I don't I, I doubt many copies of any Shakespeare came over on the Mayflower, and I doubt any of them were reminiscing over the play they heard at the Globe. Mm-hmm. They they had they had other things on mind. It was, it was definitely probably, considered sinful and they definitely had mm-hmm. religious persecution they were trying to escape. Uh, at the time, so I'm sure they were bringing other yes. things. I did read a little bit that there was there is some. Um, I can't remember if it was like a journal entry or like a letter that they found, but apparently, like a decent number of the Puritans that were here eventually, like not right off the bat, but they would read Shakespearean plays to each other like as a poem i'm sure some of them had sonnets and things like whatever um but there was definitely like no theater performances of it that anyone is willing to own up to at this point 
That's funny how you say that. Willing to own up to. I say that because I truly believe that there must have been somebody that was like, I saw Romeo and Juliet at this whatever. You know? I, I agree. I think there are probably... It's a shame, but yeah, there are probably many instances of Puritans who had bigger appreciations than they're willing to admit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if they were able to swallow their, their pride and, and own up to that, and then maybe, maybe things would have been different. I don't know. It could be a completely different place. And then uh, these Puritans that are in the Northeast, along with... with new slews of folks from across the Atlantic uh, start filling up the middle and southern portions Mm -hmm. of what we know as like the 13 original colonies, that whole eastern sea border. And so that's kind of that timeline. The other timeline, Shakespeare, that I want to recap kind of quickly is just that, you know, we need to remember that very very early on like Roanoke days Shakespeare is alive but he's, he's very young still and so the, these expeditions are, are talked about but how much of it is, is really affecting him it, it's probably not much you know it, I mean it took months to get from England to what we now mm-hmm. know as North America like they probably were like we're gonna send this group of people out there and then they didn't hear anything for probably a year or two years. And then someone would come back and be like, oh, remember those people that left? Well, they're all dead now. So maybe we'll send. I'm sure there was like so little information coming back and forth. <laughs> it's pretty horrible. But it <laughs> yeah. sounds like that was the story most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but so that's that's happening. And I believe he's in his early 20s when that's kind of happening. And then uh, when he's writing his first plays, which are kind of histories, that's in the 1590s. That's you know a little post Roanoke or, or during post Roanoke, and then the printing starts, and we get his uh, first. Uh, we have his, his first. What do you call the one that's not the folio? There's a quarto. The a quarto, yeah, yeah. A quarto. I was going to say a quattro. It's like, <laughs> not right. Uh, and so we have the first quarto uh, coming in 1594. I think it's Titus or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then and then the ones that are even folded more, the octavos, we have those in 1595. And so there are printings being done. And so we're making a little bit of a transition towards literature, which, by the way, the King's Company was a little bit scared of that. They, they wanted everybody to come see performances or hear performances at the globe and and so this printing was actually a little bit uh wasn't it it illegal a a little bit troublesome wasn't it illegal for a while to have like a folio or a quarto because they didn't want people to read it and because they were not right the right words they rarely were the right words which is why Shakespeare scholars, appreciators, actors, etc. always talk about first folio, first folio, first folio. Mm-hmm. And and people always go, oh, well, that didn't come out until 1623. And we were having uh, quartos and octavos for, for decades before that. How come we're not focusing on those? And it's because of exactly what you just said, where, okay, yeah, we have this copy of Macbeth. We have this copy of Titus. Well, you probably don't have a copy of Macbeth. But a copy of Titus, a copy of Henry VI, Mm-hmm. And and but they're so early that they're that they're missing some things. They're bootlegs. And so it's n- it's like us going mm. to a concert and recording it on our phone and then selling that. Like people just sat there and were like, "Oh, I I think he said yeah. to be, but I maybe it was to me. Let's go to me or not to me." And I think yeah. that's hilarious. I think it's funny. Uh, I I also think that it's funnier that we're assuming that we've got it all right today. I was literally just thinking that. I was like, how much of the plays that we perform and that we read and that we talk about uh, this one specific word choice being so beautiful 
for the whatever situation like how much of it do you think is actually what was there i'm sure most of it is correct but it's just interesting to think about mm-hmm. people spend their entire lives dissecting his words and who's to say that it wasn't pulled from some bootleg copy all assuming that it actually is william shakespeare and it's not this bacon nonsense well that, that could be a whole nother episode as well <laughs> i think it will be eventually because i would really like to talk yes. about that that'll be like a two yes. hour long episode because i have a lot of thoughts and feelings but <laughs> um, I, i'm eager to hear the the feelings yes, they, yes. okay but anyways we've got our quartos and our folios and mm-hmm and, and so it's not until even after that the first group of puritans land in Plymouth that we have the first folio that's 1623 mm-hmm. three years after the Puritans land in, in new in the Northeast and so you can start to see those timelines converging uh, where okay we have some we, we the general public has seen as, as much Shakespeare as they're gonna see in Elizabethan and Jack uh, Jacobean eras because now he's passed and and now there is a rise of power in, in the Puritan community. And now the long parliament is, is in England is starting to make some choices that are, are not beneficial to the theater. And so what is kind of interesting is that the King's Company and their, and their hesitance on getting more printed quartos of these plays so that they're more accessible leads a little bit to their downfall. Obviously it's not a downfall because we're still talking about Shakespeare today. So it's not a full downfall, but you contributed to this downfall of, of, or dip, dip in interest, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And so the dip in interest in performance in, in uh, London and in England, and especially with the civil war that's going there, you know, all these contributing factors kind of stack up. And so as Shakespeare passes away, you know, his his plays start to fade a little bit, it seems. And so that kind of carries over to uh, to the state side where not there's not as much interest because they're moving on to new types of of theater and, and new playwrights or or shutting theaters altogether like the different bands that happened in theaters in the 1640s. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is kind of contributing. Uh, but the, the nestled in between all this is when he wrote The Tempest, and that's 1600, 1601. Uh, so well, well before his death, but it starts to make some of these these references in his, in his lines that are pretty clearly talking about the Americas. Uh, you know, I want to say Ashley because Amanda and I were in The Tempest. Oh, yeah. And, and our, our friend Ashley played... Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm playing Prospero's YouTube. daughter. Hold on, I have the script. Prospero's daughter. I've got it. I've got it. Oh my gosh. How embarrassing. But, but the, the Brave New World line, what is her name? I'm looking. I'm looking. Well, if, depending on who you ask, Prospero has three children, right? Uh, Ariel, Caliban. Uh, uh, oh my gosh. Um, Sebastian and. Miranda. Miranda. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. Yeah, Miranda. Brave New World and and the elements of colonization that are in the Tempest. And so I think Shakespeare is definitely thinking about these things mm-hmm. even before they're getting to Jamestown because Jamestown doesn't happen until 1607. And so the, the timelines start to converge when he starts putting thematics and, and small bits of lines into a play like The Tempest uh, when really it's just the experiences at Roanoke that we have. So I, to me, that's where things start to kind of converge. And then, and then unfortunately, passes shortly after that. Didn't write too many more plays after The Tempest. Um, mm-hmm. And then where, we, where do we go from here? Shakespeare is gone. We have more settlements in America, both 
uh, English, Dutch. So how, how did Shakespeare's words get here, if not on the Mayflower into, into Plymouth Rock in 1620? Well, it's, it's still a little hard to determine that, but we, we start to get some records of libraries and things like that of, of these different people. So uh, there is uh, one Arthur Spicer. Uh, he had uh, a, a quarto, which was Macbeth. And that actually probably was printed a lot later than some of the other octavos and quartos that we're talking about because it's it's Sir William uh, Davenant's Macbeth. And so that is not William Shakespeare's Macbeth. It's this other writer who is noticing post-theater closures in London, which in, in the 1640s there were theater closures because there was civil wars going on and between King Charles and the Long Parliament. Long story short, Shakespeare and the theaters were quiet for some time. And so the new plays that come after that are these, uh, they're not even the bootleg copies anymore. Mm -hmm. They are, they're recreations or reiterations. And so this Macbeth that Arthur Spicer has, that is, we believe is one of the first copies of Shakespeare we find in 17th century America, is, talks about the witches being these like, pretty, almost mystical beings and how there are some elements of opera or music and and so uh Devnant kind of makes it musical like and, and he changes some things about the witches and and some things about the verse and so while it's largely the same story there are elements of it where it is no longer shakespearean that is so, amazing. I've never heard of this before. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and, and that was performed a lot. And you know, so it, it's kind of weird because as I was learning about all of this, I'm learning that lots of the quote unquote founding fathers and and other figures in early colonial America were doing doing Shakespeare, were reading Shakespeare mm -hmm. for literature and for intellectual stimulation. But this a copy like this arthur spicer i don't know what he would get out of it assuming that he knows that there are some pretty large discrepancies between william shakespeare's macbeth and sir william devenant's macbeth does he get the same stimulation out of it or is it because he he has this copy because he's seen it at the drury lane theater in london and it brings him good memories you know it, so it's kind of hard to say there's no diary account where he's where he says why he has a copy like this or maybe he's never seen it and he thinks that this is what it's supposed yeah. to be which i think is my personal belief like what i'm gonna tell myself because it brings right. me a little joy to think this man sitting here like this william shakespeare guy he knows how mm -hmm. to write music blah blah, blah. i yeah. think that would be amazing <laughs> and, and, and that just i would like to believe that too and if that is true <laughs> then that just goes to show that dark spot in where theaters were closed in the 1640s, how much that really changed things. Mm -hmm. and, and how much uh, gray area that left for theaters reopening to kind of do what they wanted. And now a generation of, of actors and audience members are kind of come and gone. And, and now you can spin Shakespeare not however you like, but almost. Mm -hmm. You do whatever you want almost. with it. That's so cool. Yeah, I thought so too. And then we have some other early accounts. Mm -hmm. There's a, a Major Edward Dale. Uh, he sat in the House of Burgesses, and so he was he was a Virginia boy. He had a second folio, a second folio, so not first folio, but the second folio. So a very very prestigious book to have, uh, and that was not 1623 but 1632 but it, it wasn't until well after this printing um, that he had it in Virginia with him uh, but you know why is is this one of the first accounts of of a Shakespeare piece when 
there were many other pieces available much earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and the only thing that I can kind of land on is, well, you know, maybe maybe he had, he was came from a family that did really well, and so they they have the prestige of having the folio as opposed to one of the earlier smaller copies, mm-hmm. something like that. Well, and they they um, have the money and the yes the resources yes, to have a library and to keep a record of their library where I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of the people who are coming over probably did not have the resources to, you know, write down, well, I've got a cordo and I also have a Bible, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of Yeah, and why, why would you write that unless you had a full library like that you needed someone of. to have? Yeah. 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 And and so we can inference that maybe there were some other earlier copies around, but the... The blunt kind of truth is that there weren't even that many American settlements at this point in the mid-1600s. And the cost of a folio is absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I think I was I ran around on a bunch of different websites and finding that, oh, it was 20-some pounds when it was first printed. But, you know, after you adjust that to USD and using the Bank of England's website, adjusting for inflation, a folio would have cost it like thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. It, it was not, you know, there were there were only a, so many printed to begin with, and that's why I only have a, a couple hundred that we know about even today. But, you know, it was no small feat. And so it makes sense that very few of those copies made it over. You know, we don't have the advent of the internet or the modern, uh, or at least the accessibility of modern, modern printing presses and, you know, getting 99 cent books in everybody's hands. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find any of the cost on the Cordos or the Octavos, but I'm imagining those are relatively expensive too. It, you know, it's, it's not like picking up a novella in the gas station, really. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the, the theater ban. That also, you know, contributes to not having many copies in early colonial America because, you know, the Puritans, their power is, is kind of there. And, and some of the people in the long parliament who are making decisions, um, you know, in, in combat to Charles, who was an appreciator of theater. And, uh, and so much so, in fact, that when the long parliament said, hey, you know, you, you're going to be fined and and outcasted for being actors or or theater goers and things like that. So that's I think 1642. Mm-hmm. Actors and probably other thespians of kinds started going. Okay, well you know you're going to call us rogues and we're going to be fined and things like that. Well then we're just going to you know Charles wouldn't do this to us, so we're gonna we're going to fight for him. And then that and that's this whole civil war that goes on between. The Long Parliament and Charles, um, which is really interesting. It's probably not an episode we're going to do just because it's kind of post-Shakespeare, mm-hmm. or at least post-Shakespeare's life. Um, but you should definitely look into it if you have more interest in that, about how uh, even though our first episode was about English Civil Wars, they call this the first English Civil War because it's um, you know it's not two cadet branches of a, of a family going at it. It's actually like an executive, mm-hmm. a king, and and a legislative branch, a parliament, who are igniting that conflict. I just kind of feel like they want to just diminish the fact that they've had like five or six civil wars. Yeah. And they're like, this was the first oh. one, though. This was the real one. Those other ones weren't just wars. They weren't truly civil wars. There's there's probably some shame involved. I'm not gonna fully fully blame them, yeah. but yeah, it's it's it is kind of it is kind of baloney sandwich to say that uh mm-hmm. to say that's true to say that's the first civil war. Oh, so England. that's that kind of contributes to why we're not seeing so many copies early on. Mm-hmm. Then oh gosh, what else? So it's the theater bands in England. And then you have to remember that there are just fewer copies in general. Mm-hmm. 
because the king's players are were attempting to halt the these printings and whatnot because they're thinking oh you know you know we we don't want people to to just have access to it in their pocket we we want people to come to continue to pay and see the plays yeah i i hope they would have had a little bit more faith to go oh people will still see us even after mm-hmm. they're printed but did you see anything in your research about literacy rates of the settlers that were coming mm. over because that's something I didn't really find anything oh, on, wow. but I was like thinking about it. Like, I wonder too if people just couldn't read. Like, you have to it's think possible, some of them you know. that came over could, but do you think a vast majority of the people at this time? Because there's, uh, by the time we're hitting like the late 1600s, early 1700s, there's a decent amount of like indentured servitude uh, that's happening in those are a lot of the people that are being brought over and I just wondered like maybe people could only hear the plays they couldn't actually read them for themselves that is true and if it weren't for those stinking Puritans then maybe there would have been more performances on the boats uh, early as ships landed in the Americas Mm -hmm. and so that wouldn't have been so much a problem but all that being said I'm you know I know there's a, a lot of people who did not have literacy in in England at the time and so hearing a play made sense and so yeah some people probably wouldn't even buy a, a quarter or anything mm-hmm. but I, I have to imagine and assume that lots of the people who were important enough to go over to the to the new world mm-hmm. probably had some sort of literacy mm. uh, minus what you're talking about with the start of servitude that starts to go on and whatnot Mm -hmm. that's interesting and it's crazy to me i'm gonna jump ahead in history a little bit here but that so we have copies of the cordos and and folios like as early as what did we say 1632 but the first recorded production of something wasn't until what did the notes say like 1730 i think yeah, 1730, there was a Romeo and Juliet somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's crazy that it took so long. Oh, 1730, yep, was the first recorded production of a Shakespearean play. So, I mean, I'm sure there were other plays, but for his stuff to have been here and ha- for him to have been writing and having his plays put out for so long and then there's just nothing for a hundred years, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's an aspect to it where, uh, as we find that theater got more social in general, uh, and and a, a little a little less stimulating. Mm-hmm. So there there was someone named uh, William Bird, mm-hmm. and he was someone who was born in the colony of Virginia. He died in the colony of Virginia. And he's kind of a good example of the difference between Shakespeare's literature and Shakespeare as performance mm-hmm. because he had he had Shakespeare and he read Shakespeare at home in Virginia. But he was educated in London and he would make trips in London. And so, you know, there he has diary entries where he, he, you can see that he's clearly being stimulated, activated, inspired by Shakespeare's texts. And he's probably laying out a folio or quarter in front of him and, and really soaking it all in. And then when you read his diary entries of him going to London, uh, you know, he, he'll go to uh, Drury Lane Theater or wherever it is. You know, there weren't so many theaters actually at, at the time doing Shakespeare, even in London. Mm-hmm. And it, it, would, it would be like, ah, uh, yes, I sat next to Miss Smith. And it was a nice time, and we oh, and we also saw Julius Caesar, and it, you know, the, 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 it felt the way that he's writing about it. You can read it as though it were like a social event, and for him to meet uh, other important men and women, uh, and and that the play part kind of took a, took a backstep you know he was not there as a critic and he was not there to to hear the play and then and then write a journal entry or diary entry about how and 
Mark Antony was acted beautifully and I was inspired by his speeches. No, it wasn't really any of that. I feel like, because we hear about this in theater history classes in school, but it's like Mm -hmm. theater for such a long, long, long time was a social event that you talked through. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. like today where you go and watch a movie, you go and watch a play and you're quiet and you sit and maybe you clap at intermission and all of that like people went and they had their conversations and they looked up and they were like oh that was a a nice little speech and then they like go back to their thing or they're shouting at the actors so i feel like there it was more of uh like a way to just go and socialize with people in your community rather than we're gonna go and watch this play and you know yeah, I, I, I think that's all totally right. And so it, it kind of stinks that they weren't able to bring any of that early on over into colonial America. But, the, you know, there's some kind of obvious roadblocks. Uh, like, for one, the the social aspect that you would have in London. You know, if you look at uh, drawings or schematics of the Drury Lane Theater, mm-hmm. it was a very nice venue. And they, they really don't have, I think, all the extra resources they would have needed to be to uh, supply, A, and B, justify building those types of venues in early colonial America when they're really just trying to get their footing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, we're, we're only a few decades into settlement surviving, so maybe they're still a little bit more focused on that mm-hmm. than, hey, let's start building the... Let's start start building the humanities, which kind of stinks. But it, unfortunately, that that's the utilitarian portion of it that has to happen. It seems like the 18th century is really when theater and Shakespeare particularly started to come back into play. No, like yes, they yeah, we and, yeah, had the first performance 1730. I see the first theater was built in 1716. Yep, and so that was in Williamsburg, Virginia. And so these theaters, and by theaters I mean the actual buildings themselves, were starting to be built more in the southern colonies because that's where the Puritans weren't. Mm -hmm. The groups who were still of the belief that, well, I mean, I I feel like I have to read this. I mean, I've, I've talked a lot about how Puritans feel about theater, there was uh, a Puritan named Increase Mather who built a testimony uh, against theater. And he was, a, he was an American in the sense that I believe he was born in the Americas and uh, studied, studied religion at Harvard. And his testimony goes such as, Hence ancients call such theaters the devil's temples and stage plays the devil's lectures and the actors in them, the devil's chief factors. Tertullian, in his book De Spectacalis, Cap 26, speaks of a woman that upon her going to see a stage play was immediately possessed with the devil and the evil spirit being in a way of exorcism expostulated with for entering into one that professed Christianity. He answered that he had just cause to do it for said he... In Mayo and Vinny, I found her in my own ground, where I have dominion. So, damn. <laughs> if you if you go if you go to Increase Mather and and say, yeah, let's build a theater in Boston, he's going to say, oh, the the Temple of the Devil that I've read about, which is it's pretty baseless. As someone I mean, who's spent a lot of time in theaters, I mean, is he like really wrong? The whole possession uh, thing, like well, I don't, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. Well, no, it, I know, I know. You're just kidding, but I'm almost not because, yeah, there's there's no religious aspect to to the possession of it all. But you know, I know a lot of actors who have gone through training where they probably would use that word eventually. That like, oh, it, you know, to be in a character, it's like you're like possessed by the character, or you're possessed by like. By a, by a different voice, or and and to someone who doesn't know how the theater works, to see someone just go from 
their their everyday person and fall into a character and start speaking lines of verse probably looks pretty possessed like so I, I will give them that but i think they really probably took it too far to to assume that this is devilish and evil mm-hmm. um like what and, play you know, did she it, see that they thought this yeah. is what i want to know i want to know like what play was she watching I don't know. It was much, much earlier in history. It was not even a Shakespeare play. I know. I just want to, I want to know because maybe there was some demonic component to it and they like, I don't know. That could be. Yeah. Like I I would say Faustus, but that's too late, obviously Mm. too. Something earlier that, that I, that is not even on the tip of my tongue, Mm -hmm. but you know, and so it makes sense that the, unfortunately that the theaters are not being built because the people who are in power have these beliefs that 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 these are potentially you know temples for the devil mm-hmm. which is a big shame it's a big shame but some of some more of our founding fathers like Benjamin Franklin his brother passes away and he has to kind of take over the printing company and he talks about how he has Shakespeare's work in his in his library and about how uh well it's it's kind of the sentiment about uh that actually appears in julius caesar where they talk about oh a craftsman uh wears a brown apron to show that they're a craftsman Mm -hmm. and so when he takes over the printing company and prints that oh yes this is you know this is what's in my personal library my brother my past brother and i's late brother and i's personal library you know that he'll say that you know, we have Shakespeare's works in our library, which seems like an arbitrary thing. Like, okay, why are you why are you telling the world that you have Shakespeare's works in your library? Well, I think it, to him it's the idea of this is my this is me wearing my artisan's brown apron. This is me showing the world that I'm that this is I am a, a person of this craft mm-hmm. and things. And so we have people that are are proud to be Shakespearean scholars and appreciators. But George Washington not... was also like an avid theater goer. Um, yeah. And he even after Revolutionary War, when and, and during his presidency, he was trying to like promote people to go to the theater like he wanted more plays, Shakespeare or whatever to be put on so that he could go see them. But also he thought it was good for people to see plays so that's like such a dramatic shift from you know puritans believing people are being possessed in the theater to the people running early america trying to get everyone to go yeah george washington he did right in that sense and encouraging other people to go really i think saved theater probably in a small way mm-hmm. at least in the americas I think so that's something that's something to be happy about in all this. The Revolutionary War, I think, is a lot of it is the reason why it, it sort of came back, I think. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's kind of what sparked talking about this topic even was when looking at the Revolutionary War, like the British and the Americans were using Shakespeare's monologues to Yeah. convince people. Yeah. You were reading um I don't know if I'm going to misconstrue what you were saying, but something about how Hamlet's famous soliloquy mm-hmm. being adjusted to have, not as like propaganda, but to have like some sort of socio, yeah, I was yeah. going to say some sort of sociopolitical narrative spin, right? So, so I, I found it, it in sense. this book that everyone should find and read called Shakespeare in America. And it's an anthology from the Revolutionary War to now. Um, but he, uh, James Shapiro, who wrote this book, goes through and like reads monologues and um, like gives all like adjusted versions of Shakespeare or essays on Shakespeare that have been published over the last two or three hundred years, and he, it's they called it a parody on the soliloquy of Hamlet. Okay. 
which is uh, to sign or not to sign. So they did this with everything, like to tax or not to tax, to sign or not to oh, sign, to try to, to write to not to write, convince yeah. people to be like, hey, you should sign my petition to say f you to the king because I don't want to deal with him anymore. You know. So I think mm-hmm. if the Revolutionary War had never happened, then we may not have the awesome presence of theater that we have today yeah there's certainly a lot of truth in that Mm -hmm. and that that even rose above this kind of roadblock that happened in 1774 where they met uh, for continental congress and talked about how hey you know it's the theater in williamsburg was built what is that 58 years ago something like that Mm -hmm. and and since then theaters have been built all up and down the coast and now now people are getting you know kind of too comfortable and now as we're you know they don't they don't know it at the time or they don't certainly know it at the time but in 1774 they're approaching signing the declaration of independence in a couple years and they're they're on the brink of really turning the tide and pulling away from england they they start to say okay we need to stop the kind of frivolity and unfortunately to them the frivolity meant theater and so uh, as, as much as george washington encouraged people to go to the theater we also have this force that is saying yeah 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 but now is not the time do you wonder and, if that's because the english were <clears throat> also like really they're the ones that started this sort of like we're going to use theater to steal people back to our side do you ever I think, think so. maybe that they were like, the British do this better than us? I think that's a part of it. I think the other part of it is, uh, I don't even think we got to talk about this much, but one of the first companies that comes over and does theater is the, what is it, the London Comedians or something like that? Here I have it. London Company of Comedians mm-hmm. that came to Virginia in 1751. Right, and, and so when they come... They're English, and so for everybody to kind of flock to and idolize these players that are that are English, you know, it it, mm-hmm. it maybe sent some worries into into those in power in colonial America, going, oh, are are we gonna, you know, they have they have kind of have a grip on the media, so to speak, you know, as mm-hmm. if you want to compare it to today's times and. And people are worried about, oh, who controls the media and, you know, what goes into music videos and and all that type of jazz that people talk about now. Well, what was that? What was that 250 years ago? That was probably theater and literature and newspapers. And so how can we how can we control the message when the English are starting to get power in in the arts and in the humanities? Well, we we need to Mm -hmm. stop the frivolity and things like that. So I think you're totally right that there maybe is an aspect of it like that. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's just like nothing ever changes. Yeah. I know. Like that's exactly the stuff that happens today, and it's just it like drives me crazy. But I also think like it's so kind of interesting how predictable we are yeah. as humans. Um, but companies, I mean, speaking of the London Company of Comedians, like they're part of the reason that Shakespeare grew, I think, so much because the traveling theater companies during the Revolutionary War and post are really what got it spread to everybody, even in the more rural areas of some of the states, I think. Right, and and some of the first theaters that were being built were, I don't know if, if rural is quite the right word for my for my research, but that, that mm-hmm. the theaters were definitely just like more integrated and and they were in the land some of them were in forests they're recorded as being in forests and whatnot and so mm-hmm. you know it's it's a simpler kind of a thing they're not building the drury lane theater and so it's probably a little bit more accessible um and so that's all good things i really think so mm-hmm. so yeah lots of this all kind of concludes at the fact that lots of the early American 
instances of Shakespeare, there, whether it be a folio in someone's library or the Cordos, you know, there wasn't a lot of performance to begin with. It's a lot of intellectual stimulation. There's reflection and people, you know, get philosophical with it, which they should. They should. We do too. Um, but then there's people who spend their whole careers that just do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm more partial to the performance and the and going to hear mm -hmm. or see a Shakespeare play, but I I certainly value it the the way that early American colonists did too. Um, and mm -hmm. and you know as much as the Puritans got in the way of performance and out of theater in colonial America. Uh, they also kind of used it too. There are instances of Puritan preachers using Shakespeare in sermons, and um, there was there was earthquakes in Boston, and and they would use some text from uh, from from Shakespeare to illustrate the the kind of tragedies that had gone on in in recent days after those mm -hmm. earthquakes and so it it was it was almost like a secondary or tertiary scripture whether they wanted to admit it or not and so i think lots of the churches not all of them certainly but probably some of the churches uh became mini performance spaces in that sense i mean i i've, I've gone to a church before where sermons are happening and that's performative to me it's almost theatrical mm -hmm. and so I, I think it's interesting that it took us 100 years or more to build these theaters and and have actual theater but mm -hmm. you know these other kind of explorations of, of theater and literature and even uh, uses of, of of dramatic text in church were okay. That part was okayed, but not the actual house of drama, not the actual theater. Totally. Oh, so crazy. And just like extra crazy how he has been so interworked and like what would theater have looked like sooner if the Puritans hadn't been, you know, Puritans. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. that's pretty much the last question I have to ask is is if if they didn't get in the way, I mean, kudos kudos to these texts for being able to survive all the all the dark spots where they mm -hmm. were pushed away or um, and theaters were closed down or banned and actors mm -hmm. were called rogues and so I think it's excellent that it's survived to this point. And, and even with the advent of television and movies that were, were still surviving and, and Shakespeare is still more than, than uh, literature, it's still used as performance and theater is still around. Even after a global mm -hmm. pandemic, theater is still around. I just, saw, I just saw two plays in the past few weeks. Neither of them were Shakespeare admittedly, but, but you know mm -hmm. there are Shakespeare plays happening now. And so... While I think we probably could have had a healthier theater landscape, theatrical landscape in the U.S., if it were not for some of the things going on in, in England mm -hmm. while they were coming over and colonizing this area, I think we've done, we've done pretty well with agree. all the obstacles we've been given. <sighs> what a world. History is, like, so crazy. I'm loving, like, reading into all this stuff because every time it's just new stuff is yes. opened up about why things are the way that they are here sometimes you know like i read something and i'm like oh that's really similar to even how we are 400 years later i, I want to leave our listeners with mm -hmm. uh, some resources i know amanda mentioned uh, a book uh there's one that i was following a lot throughout my research called shakespeare in the making mm -hmm. of america by kevin j hayes and so that is uh, two, three hundred pages, some of, of lots of different information about how different texts made it overseas and, and lots of instances of founding fathers using the text in diary entries, pamphlets, articles, 
things like that. Um, and then there's a, a short pamphlet about the reading of Shakespeare in Colonial America by Edwin Elliot Willoughby. That's a great resource as well if you want to learn more about these things. Um, Increase mm -hmm. Mather is the is the Puritan who had the testimony against severe, profane, and superstitious customs. So he, with his um, kind of nonsense about mm -hmm. the theater being a, a devil's temple. But if you if you're interested in in learning what the ideals of a early colonial American Puritan were like, mm -hmm. that's probably a good place to look. Um, the Folger Shakespeare Library is always a great resource. Yale Historical Review. Um, and then uh, what Shakespeare was the book in America, from an Shapiro? anthology Amanda. from the revolutionary or revolution to now. And we'll post links to all the articles yes. and books and all that kind of jazz um, in the description of this podcast so you guys can take a look for yourself and dive a little bit deeper without all of yeah. our extra commentary. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. Oh, come on. They um, love us. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to check back next month for something new and interesting. Yeah, and, and so we'll we'll get information about what we're doing next sometime soon. Uh, but in the meantime, if people have more things to say about uh, what was going on in early colonial America with Shakespeare, about our, our the Founding Fathers and, mm -hmm. and different things like that that they want to share with us, is there a, a good email for that to go to? Oh, yeah. Um, EveryMothersSonsProductions at gmail.com. That will also be in the description. Awesome. Amanda, it was such a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely. Um, it's always such a pleasure <laughs> to talk with you. Uh, someone else who is interested in the same things I am. And, and now we've got a little following of people who are also like-minded. I think that's so excellent. I'm so happy to have everyone who's listening. Absolutely. We'll, we'll be with you next time. <laughs>